Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Satyan Sangani. Satyan is the co-founder and CEO of Alation, a data catalog and governance solution. Uh, just last year, Alation uh, raised $110 million Series D to drive growth and product expansion. Satyan, welcome to World of DAS. Oren, it's great to be here and great to see you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, a few years ago, you 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 wrote this piece in the World of uh, World Economic Forum blog where you basically claim we're still kind of in the dark ages of data, uh, and you mentioned like data literacy is incredibly low, um, and that we even if we just marginally increase data literacy, it will result in just a ton of innovation. Like, what are some like maybe a non-obvious steps to increasing data literacy? Yeah, I mean, so I think just to give a sense for the statistics, you know, that 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 title, you know, being in the dark ages is obviously super dramatic, but I actually don't think it's super far off from the truth. If you look at the data, there are there's an estimate from the Bureau of Labor Statistics that basically said that there's going to be roughly 67,000 new jobs created in analytics and data you know, maybe somewhat narrowly defined, but that's basically the number. Now, roughly you know, let's call it seven, eight billion people over that same period in the human race. And you, so you would think that, you know, I think that's one one hundredth of 1%, um, if that, if my math is right. And if that's true, right, the opportunity of getting data in the hands of an order of magnitude more, hopefully two to three order of magnitudes more people, you know, could be massive in terms of the amount of innovation that we unlock. Because, you know, as you and I know that as we work in the Valley, there are so many people with ideas, but those ideas are limited by people's ability to basically build software programs and figure out what's true about the world around them, which is how effectively data works and functions. And so to answer your question now, how do we get more people to be data literate? I think certainly the educational system has a lot to do with that, our ability to focus on math, science, statistics, and to be able to give people the basic skills of analysis matters. But I also think that the world of software and certainly the world of enterprises and companies writ large have to take a much bigger role in training their people to use data and to think with data. And that's not a responsibility that we can slough off on the educational system anymore. Like that's gotta be something that all of us as enterprises for our own self-interest take on and training people. Isn't that like the classic like McKinsey training to learn how to use data or something? Or do you think it has to be a lot more rigorous than that? I think it probably has to be more rigorous, but I think I think I think that it doesn't necessarily have to be all done in one go. And I think software has a role to play with that. Like, you know, Yelp teaches us how to go buy or go to go pick what restaurant we want to go to. Software should be able to teach us in many ways how to think. And so it's not, I don't think, only the role of teachers in classrooms. It's the role of every person in a meeting. It's the role of managers in incentivizing this work and motivating it. But we've got to all learn how to use data better and how to make that a more comfortable thing. In the education world, are there any like countries or educational systems that are doing a decent job? I think there are companies that are doing, some companies that are doing a great job. I mean, we've got some phenomenal examples. And I think probably because we're at the 
bleeding edge, bleeding edge, if you will, of companies that are interested in building data cultures. We've got some amazing examples like Pfizer, who have a 101, 201, 301 core system for how they train their data analysts and ultimately graduate them to being data scientists. Interestingly, these programs look very similar across enterprises. So if you talk to the folks at Munich Reinsurance, they've got a very similar program with that same sort of academic structure. And is this like just understanding like things like false positives and, you know, just basic data? Yeah, at the most basic level, there's like a actual statistical literacy question of, you know, being it's not like we're getting into like the money hall problem or some other type of thing or, uh, or, or is it all the way through that type of stuff? Well, or? I think, I think you do over time, right? Yep. So I think over time you get to, you know, beyond the linear regression into, you know, more sophisticated distributions and more sophisticated econometric analyses and structures, but certainly that's not where you start and not, that's not where the vast majority of people need to even end but you can get there. And being able to get the people who have the proclivity and the interest and the curiosity to get there is exactly what we, I think, need to be doing. And so I think just to, you know, there, there are great companies that are doing this work. Sometimes they partner with universities. Sometimes they do it endemically within their companies, but lots of people are doing it and more people need to be doing it. Sometimes you think of data as like, or databases as like rows and columns, right? And then you have this naming convention of these columns, which varies a lot from company to company and database to database. And one of the things that I think Alation does, it uses machine learning and AI to kind of like help clean it and speed it up. Can you walk us through a little bit about how that works? Yeah. And I love the way that you started this question, because I think it's really important for people that want to understand data to understand how data is born. Most people who are building those tables and columns are computer programmers who are basically trying to name these columns because they want to efficiently write a computer program to do something. So if I'm writing Uber, you know, like I might like say, you know, writer address and I might call it RDR underscore ADD. And that's because I'm a programmer and I don't want to type any more than I have to type because I type a lot and I want to be able to shorten the names of my variables. And I don't really care how that's done. I'm just doing it. And so now some person has to come along and figure out writer address because they want to build some algorithm to understand what the most common zip codes are that people who are hailing, you know, Uber premium have to come from. And so that might be a question for somebody. And now they've got to go back in time and understand what writer RDR underscore ADD means. And, you know, that could be writer address, or it could be the fact that the writer has attention deficit disorder, but like, you know, it could be anything, you know, in the world. And the, the reality is that those people don't talk to each other. And so how do you then figure out what that person intended and meant when they were writing that program? And how do you communicate that more broadly? And how do you understand the assumptions? Because even capturing something as simple as writer address, well, what if you use a convention in, you know, using basically, uh, you know, geo, what if you geoencode it for the address, as opposed to using an actual physical street address? Like, those are two different things. And knowing what that means is, is really hard for the person that's downstream. And so then what we do is we basically try to use machine learning to look at the lexicon and the writings within that company, within an Uber per se, they're not a customer, but they're a great example. And then say, oh, well, we see RDR is always writer. That's probably what you meant in this particular instance. And machine learning can do that greatly. 
you're actually searching through the code to do that? Or how does that, and the comments in the code and stuff? So we search through aspects of the code. So we do search through the SQL queries and typically the logs of how people are trying to ask questions around it, because that's quite informative. The physical underlying like machine code, like the Python and the Java and the whatever that may exist in the company tends to be less useful and relevant because it tends to have very, it tends to be not very semantically rich. Is there a place for like the human in the loop to help figure some of these things out? Because I imagine this is going to be really hard. Um, and then you learn from these humans over time. Yeah, it's a supervisory learning system. So we will guess. And we have this thing called Allie the robot. And Allie is this like orange looking robot, you know, super on brand for relation, but she's the personification of what we do. And she basically sort of says, hey, you know, RDR, or ADDR could be one of these four things that we've found. Can you user confirm? And we know who the experts are because we're searching through all the code and understand who's looking at this database table most often and who's querying it most often. And so when we get that information, we can go to the expert and locate them and say, is our guess correct? And once it's been corrected or you know confirmed, we can then move on and extrapolate that for everybody else who's searching for that thing forevermore. Is there also like a sense of like where you're looking on how these different columns are joined or these different foreign keys and stuff? I imagine that can help really you know quickly if there's an RDR underscore ADD and then there's uh, another field that says like CSV or you know or, or um, uh, city state zip or something like that. Maybe there's a, a some sort of relationship between them. One might be easier to decipher than another. Yeah, absolutely. And and the and and then there's also correctness, right? So one example, and you talk about like join keys. So you might say somebody might say, oh, give me all of the people in a certain area. And that area might be the Northeast. And maybe somebody lists Connecticut, New Hampshire, and Boston and um, New York, right? And then there might be another person that basically did the same thing, but they excluded New York from the definition. And it turns out that the first definition is used by lots of people. And the second definition is not used by very many people. And so what we can do is we can see in the code, which one's used more often. And we can say, oh, this is a better definition for Northeast with, that's used more commonly in the company than this other one that's only been used by one person by mistake. And so that incidence of commonality within the language also is super relevant in addition to the guessing of what the person might meant. See, so there's lots of interesting ways that we can inspect the code and the underlying database structures to learn about what the data means. I know you really care a lot about like data governance. Like where do you think the data governance um, is kind of fundamentally broken and how can we improve that? Data governance sounds like maybe the world's most boring topic in the galaxy. Like, <laughs> like you know, like who wants to like govern data and, and you know, like governance itself sounds like it's a heavy handed thing. And, you know, and then like, I'm just going to go into like these weird database tables and start to like control things. And it's like, what, what are you, what are we doing here? Um, so, but I care about it a lot because it is a means by which more people, I believe will use data. And so why don't people use data? Well, they don't use data because they don't understand it. They don't use data because they don't trust it. They don't use data because they can't find it, right? So those are the basic comprehensional questions. And so if you have data governance in place, what you're doing is you're saying, look, well, I've got these things called policies and a policy can be anything from Oren can't access this you know, HR data, or he's maybe the only person that can access this HR data to you know, things like, oh, this data has to be of a certain quality. Like if we're making recommendations to physicians about treatments, then we need to make sure that the data quality that we're feeding this system is gonna be super high quality. And so 
one then has policies. Like we've got to make sure that the test records that are recorded in this data set are going to be in the right range with the right level of certification before we can start feeding this to physicians or people who are making medical decisions. Those are the policies, if you will, broadly defined, and there are lots of different types of them that you need to apply to data for data to get used more often. And policies can help data findability because they can describe data better if you have policies that say, when you have a data set, you've got to describe it in these seven ways, who owns it, how often it's used, where it was produced, what were the downstream systems that are using it? Like those are all helpful things to know because if you know them, more people will be more likely to use data. So that's why I care about data governance. And why it falls down often is because of two reasons. First of all, it's really hard to do. Like, you know, like just the best example that I could often give people is we all have an email stack and we all try to, you know, find stuff in our email. And some of us, you know, had at one point tried to compulsively folder our email. I don't know about you, but I've given up on that because there's just no way to build a foldering system that's going to work for me across time, right? And companies now try to do this across tens of thousands of database, across, you know, tens of thousands of employees, and it just never works. And so manually curating this stuff never works. And then the other thing is, it's just not a very interesting, like the, the, the outcome of the work is really interesting, but the actual work itself is not very interesting. So you don't have enough people that need to be able to do this work or want to be able to do this work. And the work is really hard. So it tends to be unsuccessful. And so what we do broadly defined is we try to distribute the work amongst a lot of people. And we also try to make it a lot easier by applying machine learning. Now, some of the most valuable data that's out there is data that could be like pretty sensitive. If you think of like medical data or financial data or the IRS data, but those, those would be the data sets where we would learn the most about society, where we could really solve um, uh, deep mysteries of the world, where we could um, help people cure cancer faster, et cetera. Is there a way to like essentially have our cake and eat it too? Can we protect everyone's privacy either by creating synthetic data or by you know only allowing people to query the data in certain ways and then to really get the benefit of the data without seeing like the underlying very, very sensitive piece of the data? You know, if we go back to that dark ages point that we started in earlier, I think there is so much opportunity for data to be transacted in the same way that we, you know, transact around any good. And so let's assume that I have, we all have phones and, you know, one great example of data portability is sort of Apple Health where they have your health data. If I knew about clinical trials that I was interested in and wanted to support those causes, I could contribute my data possibly for compensation, possibly just charitably. But you can imagine a world where people have a lot more ownership of their own data and where and how it's used and the control over where it's how it's used. And that could be true for people. That could also be true for institutions and companies. And I think it will be, and it has to be for us to be able to collaborate openly and learn openly about what it is that we need to go do. So yes, I think synthetic data, I think is an interesting um, you know, idea. I think it's applicable in certain domains, but we're going to have to have a Chinese menu of options for how people can both contribute data and also consume data. Uh, I think over time in order for us to be successful as a society in solving a lot of the problems that we need to solve. You know, over the last five years, the number of data scientists has probably grown by an order of magnitude. And that's probably true across like every single industry do you kind of expect this trend to continue in the next five years? And then how has that kind of impacted your strategy? Yeah, I, I think it has to continue. I think of broadly, 
the data science market, which I think is in some sense a subset of the broader computer programming market uh, or you know computer engineering market, to be one that is broadly negative unemployment, right? I mean, like as long as I've been building Alation, I've never seen salaries for engineers go down. Uh, and, and certainly that's true for every role that's quasi-technical. And I think that's going to continue to happen. And, and I think the biggest, the, the only real solve is how do you enable more people faster? You know, how do you build computational literacy? How do you build data literacy? How do you build literacy around, you know, certainly computer science and programming? All of those things have to happen at a scale order of magnitude faster. Today, um, a smart person plus Databricks or Snowflake or some of these other tools that are out there, um, you know, certainly make them more dangerous today, dangerous in a good way. They, they can solve more problems than they could in the past. Yeah. And, and that's what we're going to continue to have to keep on doing. And if we don't want to live in a world where lots of people, they're the haves and the haves nots, I think, you know, the biggest determinant of that's going to be your ability to understand and leverage technology. You know, I'm sure you work with companies that have just like great data science teams and have like a super good grasp on data. And then you work with, uh, you know, customers that maybe are more emerging in that area and they're not yet at the point of greatness. Like, how does this play into like your customer success strategy? Yeah, we have to be fairly facile and responsive to the customer. And so it is true that there is a maturity curve that we see and there are different ways of cutting that, but certainly one vector is the number of people that are using data. And another vector of that is the level of average sophistication for the users within the company. And we partner you know, with our customers to be able to build data literacy within their organizations. And sometimes in the most creative roles that becomes the form of a newsletter where you know, often the best data teams inside of companies are themselves manufacturing data problems uh, where those problems are then solved to build interest and literacy and it's cast in the form of the business problem that that institution is trying to solve. I mean, I don't know if you ever, you know, like Google had this great um, ethos where you'd go to a bathroom and there'd be like a computer programming plan, um, problem on the wall. Uh, and, and so that ethos in the Silicon Valley, I think is now starting to make its way outside the Valley. And I think it's great because it's just another way of like helping people learn. At Safegraph, we sell data. And so because we just sell data, we've been selling data mainly to companies that can consume data, which are very data-oriented companies. Usually they have some sort of core data science team or uh, smart engineers and product people, you know, fairly technical. We, we made a choice not to sell companies that are not yet data-oriented. Now, lucky for us, there are more companies today that are data-oriented than there were five years ago, and, and hopefully that trend continues. But we, we kind of said, okay, we, so we, we have some qualifying questions, and sometimes they're just not ready to buy us. Maybe they're ready to buy from our customers who build products on top of our data or something. Do you have a similar analysis, or do you say, hey, we want to meet you where you're at, and if you're not yet super data-oriented, that's okay, we're going to build products for you. And as you get more data oriented, we could help you, you know, grow more. When we started the company, we probably started at the most organizationally data literate set of companies that were out there. And I think that held us in good stead, because if you think about it, the problems, the catalog, you know, at the very simplest formulation is basically a search engine. And the people that need our search engine have two characteristics. A lot of people that use data and that the, the companies that use us, you know, have basically two characteristics. One of them is they have a lot of people that want to use data or use data, and they have a lot of data inside of their companies. And if you have both of those things, you're a great, you know, 
person in our ICP or a company in our ICP. The world has obviously shifted and there's a lot more companies that want to use data and need to use data in the 10 years since we founded the company. And the product that we build has become much more sophisticated. So I would say we probably start at the at a much earlier point than we used to, but there's still probably an early stage in the market where a company might just be using one data source or have a team of five people. And at this moment in time, we don't have a product for those very, very early customers. I would say that it, what you'll see from us is to even drive towards more simplicity over the next 12 to 18 months where we do start getting to those customers to be users of our product. And I think that's important, not only just to start down market, which is great for all software companies, but also because making it that dead simple is so much a part of the ethos of what we're trying to do in broadening the use of data in the world. In your company, like you, you've recently started doing acquisitions. I know you recently acquired a company called, I think it's called Lingo Analytics, which is a data intelligence company. How are you developing and thinking about, you're probably still like early in thinking about the M&A strategy. Um, you're not yet like, like Oracle or something or, or Salesforce. So how are you thinking about that M&A strategy? And, and how do you think other companies maybe around your size should be thinking about it? I can tell you how we're thinking about it and maybe try to tease out what might be similar or different for companies in our in our phase. So the data ecosystem, I think, as we all know, is just super complicated and super rich. And it feels like for every company that may die off of those marketscape maps that we see, there are five more companies that are replacing it with new venture funding. And that makes it really complicated. We build our own version of those market maps internally based upon our architecture and our future state expectation for what we think the market's going to look like, the capabilities that we think have to exist. So these are like basically products that you want to offer, either features or products that you want to offer essentially in the future? That's exactly right. So what are the things customers are saying to us? What are the products that we're seeing on other marketscapes out there? And then we basically take all of that learning inside, outside, and try to build our own version of what we think the future market might look like. And then it becomes a matter of, you know, mapping companies into those various boxes. And then when we do, you know, that's a lot of boxes, by the way. And when we do, we basically say, okay, which ones do we really care about? And so there are certain boxes and certain spaces that are super low priority. We just don't think that we need to be in those spaces. We can partner, we can just ignore, frankly, in many cases, or there's already great incumbents. And, and the one thing I think we believe, which I don't necessarily know is, is true for everybody else is, look, I don't want to buy or acquire or, or build in a space where there is a solved problem. You don't have to do everything. Yeah, we don't have to do everything. And like people are like, oh, why don't you do visualizations? I'm like, well, haven't you heard of Tableau? Like we don't need to do that. And so I do think it's important to pick not just the spaces where you care, but also the spaces where you think you can have real leverage. What is going to make you turn from, you know, a 1x to 100x? Because growth at scale is really hard. And so the thing that I'm always thinking about is how do I get real leverage out of this thing that we're looking at? And to me, that's a relatively you know, important thing to be focused on. The other things that you focus on are our culture match, does the culture match of the company? Because MA is really hard and getting a totally separate group of people to come into your group of people and be a part of your tribe can often be really debilitating. And I think the last thing that we think about is just technical debt. Like, is the architecture going to be something that we have to replace or build on top of? And there are some cases where replacement is okay, but 
often, gosh, like inheriting somebody else's technical problems is really tough. It, once you have this market map of companies, you're narrowing down to 30 really interesting companies you think would really be a good fit. Are you doing outbound into those companies or are you waiting for an inbound or how, how does that work? We will do some outbound uh, on a very on a very limited basis for those two or three priority spaces that we think that we really need to know something about. Most of that takes the form of sort of business development activities because- Because there could be a way to partner potentially. Exactly. And so generally speaking, we're not just going to have somebody out of the blue in Corp Dev call you up and say, hey, we want to buy you. Like, yeah. that, that, let's partner, not... let's work together. Let's let's solve a customer. We have a common customer. Let's solve their needs together or, or something like that. Exactly. Once you've got a deal that you want to do, how does one thing of structuring it? Obviously, there can be you can use debt, you can raise equity, you use your own equity to to do the acquisition. There's lots of different levers. Like, how do you think about that? It's a really tough problem because when you're growing really fast, like we are, you have this challenge of how do you value your own equity? And because there's a public market for it, um, you you always have a conversation there around what is it worth. But assuming that you can get over that hurdle. Uh, you know, my default position is, look, I believe in our equity, so I'm happy to pay cash. And, you know, cash is available, so let's let's do that. And it tends to be, honestly, a negotiation based upon what the other company is willing to accept and what their investors and they, to the extent they have them, or themselves as founders are trying to optimize for. And I think it, you learn so much from that negotiation. Because if somebody sits there and says, hey, guess what? I really want all cash and I want it today. You're like, yeah, that's maybe not the culture that I'm trying to kind of build into this, this firm. So it, it, I think it's a really, the, the, the negotiation does give you a lot of information around intentions and software companies are people. So it just tells you about whether you're getting the right people. I know you also partner a lot in your go-to-market effort with companies like AWS and other types of places. Basically, how do you, how do you think of partnership, uh, partnerships versus channel versus direct sales and kind of growing the go-to-market? Our partnerships in the, the data ecosystem have been um, primarily ones that are less channel-oriented and more what I'll call solution-oriented. So it's more likely that a partner for us will bring us into a deal and that our sales team will execute it rather than that a partner having to just resell us wholesale um, as a part of their solution. Um, often that's because these data architectures are still fairly complicated. And, you know, this is a considered buy. Like it's not something, you're not just going to start off on a data discovery and, you know, build your corporate data portal around something without having that be something that you think about pretty strongly. And so our two great partners for us, um, AWS is obviously one, and you mentioned them. Another great partner for us is Snowflake. They recently invested in our Series D, and we see them as uh, their growth has obviously been fantastic. Maybe, you know, the one of the fastest growing software companies ever. Um, but what's been interesting about that is that that's been, we've had, a, you know, over 100 customers in the wild commonly with them before we even started the partnership discussions. And the same thing is true for Tableau, where they're not just like Snowflake, a customer and a partner and also an investor. And those relationships have evolved, evolved very naturally because customers basically tell you 
who to partner with and what they care about. And then your job is to basically make it better than what the customer otherwise has in front of them today. We do a lot of stuff with Snowflake as well. And really, because so many of our customers use Snowflake, it's just such a great, it's a great company. It's a great product. And so many of our customers use them. And so they're, they're constantly asking, hey, how do you get your, your data into Snowflake better? How do we, and then you start to realize, okay, we're starting to talk to Snowflake more. And then we're sharing our CRMs or you're starting to do these. And so is it, is it just like a natural progression or is it like in BD, is it like a top down? kind of thing? I think the best partnerships have an element of both. I think that you have to, on the first level, have common demand. I mean, I certainly get a lot of companies that come to me and say, hey, do you want to just partner with us? And you know, my first question, even if they're a great friend or somebody that I know well, will be, hey, do we have a customer that's actually doing this stuff in the wild? Because no sales guy, no matter how great they are going to be, or a saleswoman, no matter how great she is, is going to be able to come in and sell something that no customer actually sees value in. And so that's always the first set of questions. If you have that bottoms up demand, then you have to sort of really pick a direction and steer that demand in the appropriate way. And that has to be something that's commonly strategic to both companies, or it's never going to get done. So I do think there's always this kind of balance between at the bottom level, having real demand, but then at the top level, defining a strategy that's going to take, you know, one example and turn it into 10. Now, I'd love to ask you a couple of questions about just the data and data industry in general. How have you seen customers increase their adoption of alternative data to drive decision-making? So that would be data that maybe they're not, they don't have internally, but that they're you're getting externally to help them drive those decisions. It's interesting. I've seen over the last two years, and in particular over the last 12 months, the notion of alternative data really improve and increase. And I think that speaks to, particularly for those bleeding edge companies that you sell to, that we started off with, those companies see so much differentiated demand and competitive differentiation from having data that they otherwise wouldn't have had because it makes their algorithms that much better. It makes their decisions that much better that now you would expect, and I think now we're seeing in the data, more of these companies to crop up because having really clean, really reliable third-party data is a competitive advantage. And so we're seeing that. Yeah, we're seeing something very similar where at SafeGraph, I would say when we a company buys our data, um, and, and most of our customers are, are very large companies when they buy our data, almost all of them didn't buy alternative data more than a year before they bought us um, at all. So it's a, it's like a relatively new motion. We're maybe not the first data set that they've bought, but it's not like these companies have been buying data for 20 years or something. Right. And I would imagine their sizes are also more variable. It's not just companies that are, you know, 20,000 people with a 50 person data science team. It's also companies that are a hundred people. Sure. Startups. Yeah. Sometimes even easier for startups to go yeah. do that. We talked a little bit about these join keys that are joining data. I love thinking about join keys. Like I think like Unix time is just a great join key to put time. And are there particular join keys that you admire or that you guys are using a lot internally with inhalation? Yeah. So internally we're precluded a little bit by the notion of sharing data between instances and learning between instances. So it is, you know, but I do think there's a world as we do more with our customers in the cloud and we have more customers that are open where there will be sharing. Uh, so, cause there could be like a more of a data co-op that happens between like understanding data and et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I think the really clever ones are, you know, things like, uh, you know, they're the nouns, sort of person, place, 
thing, I think are the very obvious ones. But when you start to get into derivatives of the nouns, like foot traffic data in real estate and where you merge, you know, person and place, that stuff starts getting super interesting. And I think can be very, very interesting in terms of supplementary data. And then you can imagine sort of second derivative, speed of traffic, third of derivative, third derivative stuff where there are increasingly deep levels of sort of what, what you're calling, you know, join key data or, or, you know, master data as it were, that people are going to continue to source externally. I think it's super interesting. And I think, um, you know, our imaginations are almost limited by what we see with this stuff. At Safecraft, we're part of a whole group of a uh, couple thousand companies that we use this thing called place key, which is like an open, basically just converts like postal address into a string. And then obviously a string is very, very easy to join um, against each other. It basically takes a very complex thing of just an address, which could be could be hundreds of permutations for any given address and creates a very, very standardized way to be able to share data with, with um, whoever you're sharing data with. And you can imagine similar for like a company or something like sharing data about a company. It's like, well, there's even many different ways of writing out the company, Microsoft, Microsoft Inc., MSFT, right? There's probably many different ways. Microsoft.com, there's probably many different ways of just like deciding how to name a company or convention around a company. Well, it's so interesting because that's that broad problem is what historically people have sold software around called master data management. And historically, every company has had to buy their own master data management software, reconcile their own systems and do that internally as a single one-off project that literally there's no replicative learning from company to company to company to company. So everybody's doing the same thing all over again. And you can imagine with something like PlaceKey, which is tremendously complicated underneath the hood, people would no longer have to do those 70 to $80 million projects just to figure out what their customer names were and instead could do that with a single merge entity. And that's where I think magic, like the data magic could be significant and real and so much more, uh, so much more powerful in terms of our ability to move faster with this stuff. Cool. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm very hopeful about the future. Uh, okay. A couple of, a couple of personal questions. I know you started your career as a banker, Morgan Stanley, and then you were doing private equity at TPG. This is maybe not the traditional path to a software engineer, maybe more of a traditional path for maybe somebody who wanted a career in finance or something. How, what advice would you give those people who are kind of in that banker slash private equity path that want to get into, um, entrepreneurship that want to get into, uh, should they go work at Oracle like you did for a long time or, or, or is there another, you know, what advice would you give them to, to getting into technology? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think there are kind of three rewards of being in a lot of those career paths. I think the first is that you're the variety, like you're seeing a lot of different companies if you're in a finance job and you're seeing a lot of different situations and examples. And so there's just this like great variety of experience that you get. Uh, you know, intellectually, if you have the skills and, you know, a second might be the, the, the intellectual, you know, uh, ability to be able to analyze companies consistently. And that might be very interesting to you. And if you like those things, great. Those are, those are all, those are good things. And that would probably be the reasons to be in a finance career. I think the other two things that often motivate people to be in finance careers is because they really like the money and they really like the status. And I think in those cases, you know, you kind of have to get off the sauce, like the, the, and look, I say that with full realization that when I made, I did not know that I wanted to be a founding tech CEO when I left those jobs. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And yeah. I always worried that maybe I should have been in finance because, well, that would have paid a lot more money. 
but it took me a long time to find my way. But I think the fact that I left helped me obviously find my way rather than just staying in the career, not knowing what I wanted. So the first thing is just leave. Like you just got to get off the sauce. It's hard because um, you're giving up a salary or something. You're, you're, you're going to have, your, your comp might be lower or something. Well, significantly, right? And I think not just not just lower, but but those careers often, you know, produce an outcome where you have full life security after 10 or 15 years of being in them. And that's really hard to do in this world, which is super competitive and where it's really expensive to live in places like the Bay Area and, and, and you know, Virginia and New York and that's all hard to do, but but you, you you have to make that choice. And I think the other thing I'd say is that a lot of the analytical professions, a lot of the financial professions are professions of discernment. You have to figure out what is a good deal and what is a bad deal and what's a good company and what's a bad company and where to put money and where not to put money. And so you're on, you're constantly a critic where being in technology is all about construction and being motivated by building something. And so then the question is, are you motivated by building something? And is that what you want to do? And how do you move from being a skeptic to being somebody who's an evangelist is a, is a tough transition to make. And I guess maybe the third bit of advice I give people is do something technical, like go learn scratch, go like, if that's what you can do, go do that, go, but, but figure out how to be facile in terms of talking about data and programs and know how to talk about things like microservices, like just learn the technical language because the people who have both the numbers and the technology are 10 X more powerful than the people that just have one part of that equation. Interesting. I've heard that you spent a lot of time working with like orphans in India. Um, what, what prompted you to do this and kind of like, what's your takeaway and how do we get more orphans or not, not adopted very quickly? Like, how do we get them adopted faster? I wouldn't say it was a lot of time. So I wouldn't want to oversell my, my qualifications there. I, before I went between high school and college, I spent uh, five months in Bombay and I worked at an orphanage in Bombay. And my job at that point was to, th these were basically in most cases, kids that were not going to get adopted. And in the cases of the kids that I was working with, uh, they had polio and were unable to move their limbs in many cases properly. And so that was a rough go. And I, you know, now later on, my sister ended up adopting from an orphanage in India. And I think a lot of people would like to do that. There are, I think one thing that we all could work on is the laws and the supervision around how to make uh, adoption as a process a little bit easier because it is actually a lot harder than one I expect and certainly international adoptions. And it's really hard to match. Now that's because there's been so much exploitation in many countries, but it's also the case that, you know, there has to be a lot of work done there in order to be able to make it more of a trustworthy process, a more reliable process, but it's also a more efficient process so that people who want to give their love to these amazing children can do so. Um, but, uh, you know, what else can we do? I mean, donate money, donate time. All right, last question we ask all of our guests. What's the conventional wisdom or kind of advice that you think is generally bad advice? Fail fast. So I know that's like, uh, you know, a hollowed- That's a common advice, yeah. That's the hollowed like Silicon Valley trope, like just go and do something and fail fast and iterate. And I think on one level, look, obviously you want to learn. And so if, if the optimization point is learning, then I agree you should fail fast. But I often think that what that, ends up meaning in the case of many entrepreneurs and perhaps even VCs is like, hey, look, if you don't figure out this idea A, 
great. Like if you don't figure out how to go make the world a better place, well, then figure out how to sell Pez dispensers to really rich people. And that'll be like a really good idea. And, you know, that idea of sort of leaving the central problem that you're trying to solve and just constantly pivoting almost on a rudderless basis, I think is where entrepreneurs often get hung up and maybe you reach a locally optimal point, but you don't ever drive the change that you really want to go see. And so I think sticking with a problem has a lot of benefits and rewards and joys. And if you can really stick with a problem as opposed to just iterating the problem, that has a lot of benefits. And also these like 1% improvements, like you're just going to get better and better and better at this thing over time. There is probably a point where you do have to give up, but sometimes it's hard to know when that when that is. You're making a lot of progress yeah, towards. I mean, towards and and it, I mean, Peter Thiel, who like, you know, I think is a really interesting example, like, you know, Zero to One is obviously a great book and, you know, you, you know him. Well, I think there are lots of, you would love to think of the world in zero to one improvements and you would want everybody to work on these revolutionary ideas, but often revolutionary ideas are achieved because somebody has worked for years by grinding away at a problem. And you can't just like jump the shark. You have to, you have to, you know, problem solve your way to an outcome. Yeah. Oh, this is really great. Thank you for being with us. Where, where can people find out more about you uh, on the, on the broader uh, interwebs? Yeah, like you, I've you know been inspired to to start a podcast, and so that's called Data Radicals, and it's all about how you, as an individual or somebody who's motivated by data, can drive an organization or help other people use data more often and think with which is awesome. Yeah, it's a great. We're we're the fellow podcasters here. Yeah, yeah. So um, so I'm certainly going to learn from this experience. Yeah, highly encourage people to 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 download that Data Radicals. And so that'll be on Apple and Spotify. And separately from that, you can see me on Twitter at, at S-A-T-Y-X on Twitter. So I will occasionally post there and of course on LinkedIn. So please connect with me and Oren, thank you for your time. Absolutely. Thank you. It's been great. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of DAS, and DAS is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you. World of DAS is brought to you by SafeGraph.